0: I recently got back from Istanbul and the Hagia Sophia and the Blue Mosque, these are all incredible pieces of engineering. But one of my personal favorites in Istanbul is the Basilica system. So, not only is it underground and therefore about 10 degrees cooler than it is in the blazing sun outside, it is also one of the most spectacular pieces of Roman engineering. And what it is really is this huge cavern that the Romans used to store water. And when I went and visited it recently, it just kind of occurred to me how important water has always been, how central water has always been to human settlement, to human civilization. And if we did water well, then we thrived. And if we did water badly, we didn't survive. You know, it's really as simple as that. But what about today?
1: What is the story with water now? We have come to think of water in terms of scarcity or danger or flood, but that's not an innately human way to look at water.
0: In the West, do we really value water as much as we should be? Have we almost over-engineered our solutions? Should we be learning From other cultures around the world? Or should we just be taking a step back and allowing water to do its own thing? I'm Roma Agrawal, and you're listening to Create the Future, a podcast by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. Today, we're talking about all things water. I've got two brilliant guests with me. The first is Erica Guys, who wrote about water and climate
1: change. In her book, Water Always Wins... What we have now is a lot of fast water, and fast water is actually the source of a lot of the flooding and water scarcity that we're seeing today.
0: My second guest is Yuande Akinola. She's a chartered engineer and she specializes in sustainable water supplies. So when we open
2: our taps and keep them running as we wash our teeth, it's not just the water we're wasting, we're wasting energy as well.
0: Well, I'm really excited to have two amazing professionals here today, both of them very interested in water. So, first of all, Yuande, could you introduce yourself and tell me a bit about your background and why you love water? Thank you. It's great to be speaking with you as well today. From a very
2: young age, I was really interested in water, but more from the perspective of meeting. An immediate need, you know, in my family, we didn't always have running water. (laughs) And so it was always interesting and actually quite exciting when you could hear the water just coming into the pipes at home and literally you'd hear that rumble. And the entire household will go, water's coming. And this was in Nigeria, was it? That is correct, yes. And then we would start to get our buckets together, start to look for every single container that could store water. And actually, I think it was then that I started to really appreciate the importance of clean running water
0: tell me a little bit about what you studied and what you do now. So when it came to
2: really deciding
0: what I was going to study,
2: it was architecture for a very long time. Um, Oh, same here.
0: (laughs) And then I saw the light.
2: (laughs) Or your parents got involved because my mom got involved. (laughs) And she came into my room and kind of went, hey, why don't you consider engineering? With engineering, you'd be able to uh, solve, you know, practical problems, you know, water challenges, you know, you'd be able to potentially also help fix my car when it breaks and things like that. It was at that point I started to really then think about engineering. I still wasn't very convinced, but then I applied to two universities to study engineering and the other four universities to study um architecture. The degree that I eventually kind of went for was titled Engineering, Design and Appropriate Technology. And it just had this wonderful bias towards developing countries. And so I connected with that you know, on so many levels. But yes, that was kind of the start of my formal water engineering journey.
0: That's brilliant. Erica, I would love to hear about your fascination with water, and also tell me a little bit about your background and
1: and what you do now. Sure. Yeah, my name is Erica Geis, and I'm a journalist and the author of "Water Always Wins: Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge." And I am from California, and California is a place where almost everyone has some level of obsession with water. And that's for a couple of reasons, because the climate there, even before climate change, has always been sort of, you know, heavy rains for a while and then longer droughts. And because agriculture has become such a big thing there over the last century or so, uh, and and water has been extremely overallocated. So everybody's kind of anxious about water a lot of the time. Um, when I was a kid, there was a drought, and we had assemblies at school where they taught us how to conserve water. And then... Also, my family did a lot of hiking and camping and uh, a friend of my age that we went with, she was a swimmer and I love swimming. So we uh, sort of had a dare with each other that we would swim in any body of water we came across. So, you know, the Pacific Ocean, Alpine lakes with ice in the middle, rushing rivers, we swam in them all. And so that really brought kind of water's wild side uh, close to my heart. And then when I became a journalist, I wanted to cover the environment because that was something that I always cared a lot about. Uh, (laughs) When I very first started, there was an editor. I pitched a story about conservation of some critter. And he said, no one cares about that. Oh, gosh. (laughs) that's not the response you want. (laughs) This was like 20, 25 years ago. (laughs) Um, And so I started writing first about renewable energy and then about water because I found that even though these subjects are a bit wonky, um, they're something that everyone has to care about on some level because they're so critical to everything that we do. And I moved more toward water exclusively just as I began learning more and more about water. And It's just endlessly fascinating. You know, it's getting up to so many different things. It has such complex relationships with soil and underground and microbes and beavers and people. So, you know, there's always more to learn and it's just so complex and fascinating and important.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I so I have a slight obsession with concrete, as listeners will know, and I talk about how concrete is the second most used substance on the planet, which blows my mind, really. Obviously, water being the top on the list. And I'd, what I'd love to get from each of you, and Erica, I'll start with you, is why water is so important. And you started to kind of touch a little bit on that, on the different complex systems in nature. So maybe if you can talk about the nature stuff, and then Yubande, I'll come to you about how it relates to like urban life and so on. So Erica.
1: So I think in the dominant culture and by which I mean Euro-American culture that's been exported around the world through colonialism and capitalism, we in that context have come to think of water in terms of human need, right? So it's all about scarcity or danger or flood. And so in that sense, it's either a commodity or a threat. But for my book research, I went around the world and I found that's not an innately human way to look at water. There are many other cultures that see water as a friend or a relative. And, you know, that may sound a little woo-woo to some ears, but in fact, it encourages systems thinking. It encourages seeing water as an entity with agency And understanding that you need to make space for its complex relationships and systems, because if you don't, there's a lot of um, problems, right? So in the dominant culture, we have this attitude of what can water do for us? But in these other cultures, there's much more of a sense of that being a reciprocal relationship and you need to care for water in order for water to continue to provide what people need. And so, yeah, it's incredibly complex. And the scale at which we have interfered with that natural water cycle is really, really extreme. So on a global level, um, humans have drained or filled as much as 87% of the world's wetlands. Damned and diverted two-thirds of large rivers, and just since uh, 1992, the land area covered by pavement in our cities has doubled. And, you know, that doesn't include deforestation and hard grazing and levying and all the ways in which we have removed water's slow phases, so wetlands, floodplains, mountain meadows, and forests, which have incredibly important roles in terms of Allowing the water to slow and absorb soil when it has a lot of organic matter um, can absorb orders of magnitude more water than damaged soil. So, you know, that reduces flooding, that allows the water to filter underground. Underground water supplies surface water in the dry season, which is something that a lot of people don't realize like in the Western U.S., we think of streams as seasonal, like they only run in the winter. But historically, they a lot of them ran year round because they were supplied with this healthy groundwater table. So I could go on and on. It's so, so endlessly fascinating, but that's just a little taste.
0: And I think the point you make about what can water do for us being the sort of the dominant narrative, but being so important to look the other way and what we can learn from different cultures is, is really, really important. Um Yuande, water has obviously been so crucial to society all the way since you know, since we started creating settlements. And most of our settlements used to be around rivers because we used to get fresh water from them um, and throw waste in them, which is which is always a fun thing. But Ywande, tell me about sewers, because I think you must be one of the few people in the world that likes sewers as much as me. <laughs> a slightly weird thing. Erica, maybe you're a sewer fan as well. I don't know.
1: (laughs) I've been in them. Um, I'm interested in them. I'm not sure I would call myself a super fan. (laughs) You know what?
2: Sewers are really interesting, right? Because they're there, but they're not there. They exist beneath our feet and kind of do what they, you know, were designed to do without interfering. But we totally rely on them, you know, to live the quality of life that we live. So in the 1800s in the UK, the cities pretty much just stank. You know, London was not the London that we know today, it didn't smell very nice at all.
0: No, I wrote about this in my first book, Built actually, and everyone had cesspits, so they basically stored all of their poo and other stuff in pits. And then they were throwing dead bodies into the you know to rivers and um, into the Thames, basically. And then we were drinking from it. And then we were surprised that we were having these awful, you know, cholera epid- epidemics. So yeah, London was not a very nice place. And then you said that there was an engineer who came to try and fix this. Yes. Yeah, so
2: in the 1800s, an engineer called Joseph Bazalgette decided he was going to do something about it. He was met with huge opposition, actually. You know, he knew that this needed to be the solution, but it took him quite a lot of convincing other people and speaking to other people to get everybody on the same page. And actually, again, back to how we operate as societies, um, it became a political thing. Um, especially when the upper class started to also suffer from, you know, the fact that London was a stinking city pretty much. <laughs> he got the support that he needed and created an incredible network of what are essentially huge piped systems running um, under our feet to take away waste and wastewater.
0: So that's like, I guess, in the Western world, one of the biggest and earliest systems of removing waste. And um, in fact, yes, over time, as the water in London cleared up, then the cholera epidemics reduced and the health of people was revolutionized. And so, you know, we're really talking about our fundamental health um, related to water. Erica, you've written in your book about how we may have forgotten some important lessons from our past and historically about how water behaves. So could you maybe give us some examples of earlier practices or attitudes that we had towards water that we can learn from today?
1: Yeah, sure. It's it's hard to choose a few because uh, there are so many. <laughs> I went to Iraq, uh, to the Mesopotamian marshes, and the Madan, the marsh dwellers, are continuing a 9,000-year-old way of life. And, you know, in the Fertile Crescent, there have been numerous storied civilizations that have come and gone, uh, many of them irrigated agriculture civilizations. You know, they've diverted water, they have fallen, their systems have uh, disintegrated, and the water has retaken their marshes. And I thought about the Madonna, like, why have they persisted all this time? And I really think it comes down to their respect for water. They live on top of the water. um, They build Everything from Phragmites australis, the 20 foot tall reed that grows there. They fish, they raise water buffalo, but really they see the marshes as the provider of life. And their goal is to live with them rather than drain them and fill them and build on top of them. You know, I'm not suggesting that we all should live on top of marshes, but I think that there's something to be learned from that level of um, respect and coexistence. Another really interesting story is in Peru. So, Peru is an extremely water-scarce uh, country. Um, you know, they do have part of the Amazon, but on the Pacific side of the Andes, where 65% of the population lives, it's basically a desert. And they rely on water from the mountains um, to provide all everything that they need. And as climate warms as their glaciers melt, um, that's becoming more and more scarce. There's already people in Lima who don't have water that's expected to continue. And so over the past decade or so, um, the country has passed a series of national laws that require water utilities to invest in natural infrastructure, to invest upstream. So before that was considered corruption, a misuse of public funds, now it's required. And it's an understanding that water infrastructure is provided by nature. And so some of the projects that they're investing in involve natural ecosystems like this high altitude peatland called Bofedales or Cushion Bog. And, you know, peatlands are also super stores of carbon and super stores of water. They hold water during the wet season and release it slowly into the dry season. And another thing that they've invested in is a 1,400-year-old uh, strategy from the Wara people, which is called Amunas. And basically, um, they have a wet and a dry season, a long dry season. And so these people would divert water uh, from the rivers during the wet season and build these little canals to route them to these natural infiltration basins. And so the water would sink underground. And of course, when it's underground, it's moving through rock and soil. It's moving much more slowly than it is on the surface. And so in this way, they were able to extend their water supply far into the dry season and there were springs further down the mountain that the water would emerge and they would harvest it and then use it to water their crops. Um, So what's really incredible is, uh, you know, here there are a few villages in the Peruvian Andes that still use these systems and people know which infiltration basins connect to which springs. So they have a mental picture of how the water is moving underground, which is really incredible when you think about it.
0: So it's almost like this kind of map that you
1: can't see. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of people, a lot of uh, people who practice older traditions make use of the underground in, in this type of way. So basically, people in the cities and scientists realize that um, once they water their crops, a lot of that water will again sink underground and then eventually end up in the river. And so that also acts to extend the water supply for the cities into the dry season. And so that is another focus of this utility investment is helping communities to rebuild the Munas where they've fallen into disrepair.
0: You've written about the slow water movement. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Erica?
1: Yeah. So as I said earlier, a lot of the ways in which standard development has evolved has been to displace natural slow water phases, wetlands, floodplains, mountain meadows and forests. So what we have now is a lot of fast water. And fast water is actually the source of a lot of the flooding and water scarcity that we're seeing today.
0: So can you give me examples of fast water if some, you know, if our
1: listeners haven't heard that phrase? For example, I wrote about a creek in Seattle. Settlers move to the area, they cut down a lot of the trees that line the river, the riparian vegetation. Then water starts moving faster. It starts flooding because they don't have those trees to slow and you know, slow the rainfall and let it move into the ground. And so they think, "Oh no, things are flooding. Uh, we better get this water off the land." And so then they straighten the creek which normally has more of an S shape. And so the water starts moving more quickly. It scours the natural stream banks. It starts, you know, cutting down into the earth. Uh, people are worried about erosion, so then they armor the banks with concrete or sandbags. Um, that creates more. It removes the hyporheic zone, which is this special zone under the river where a lot of uh, microbes and other critters live that are really—it's like our gut microbiome. It's like the stream's microbiome. And if you don't have that the stream isn't healthy. Yeah, it's important for nitrogen cycling, all kinds of important processes. And, you know, in cities worldwide, people move there for water, then polluted it with sewage, then filled it or put it in pipes. Um, And so the vast majority of our, our streams and wetlands under cities are filled in and not able to absorb water. And same with pavement, right? Pavement means that like For the streams that remain on the surface, all of that water is rushing off really quickly and hitting the stream all at once. So that's another big reason why we see this flooding. So slow water is what you asked me. Um, These people I met around the world are all seeking to restore water's slow phases in some fashion or another. They're looking to instead of try to control water, to collaborate with water and with water's natural systems and relationships and make space for those systems. So that can take a lot of different forms. It can involve using the underground and natural. Uh, Geology that absorbs water quickly. Like in California, there's a phenomenon called paleo valleys, which um, scientists are searching for and hoping to use for infiltration of big storm flows, wetland restorations. A lot of city planning involves historical ecology. So that's the practice of researching what rivers, creeks, and wetlands where they were before we built our cities, because that helps us to understand where water is likely to accumulate again. And so if you have that, you can set sort of like a, you know, a 50-year plan, a hundred-year plan for your city. We tend to think of our cities as static, but in fact a lot of things change over time. So if this building is being demolished and it was on a wetland, maybe the city will choose to use that as flood protection in the future making it into a park instead of putting another building there. So um, there are many, many different ways that people can help water find its slow phases again. That's what slow water is. Amazing.
0: Um, Yawande, I'm interested as, you know, from an engineer's perspective, I can see this need to consolidate or like put banks in or try and fix stuff. What do you think the approach is as an engineer towards water so that we we kind of don't create these issues of the form that Erica's talking about
2: you know uh, just listening to erica i'm just like this is just so incredibly fascinating like how it all you know kind of weaves together especially in, in terms of i guess the engineering process you know i was i was thinking gosh so at what point are engineers involved and, and actually what can they be doing at those different points as well if i think about you know why i got interested in in water and water engineering you know it was pretty much the skills I'm going to develop now would help me bring positive impact to people's lives because I'll be able to design systems that then allow people have good clean water to drink Running water um and so things like my you know my third year project was based out in Ghana, and I think a lot of engineers kind of initially have that approach. they want to be able to get clean water to people's homes, <laughs> you know they want to be able to take wastewater safely out of people's homes through to the right treatment plants disposed of in the right way but but actually. What I'm starting to see is that remit just kind of broadening out, you know, so in addition to have that positive impact in terms of getting good quality water to people's homes, engineers are having to think about the impact of infrastructure and systems and actually people's behaviors on our
1: immediate environment. It's interesting um, listening to that. Uh, One thing I found from people around the world, including from engineers, is people telling me that a lot of the engineering schooling that's happening is still very much set in the past. And a lot of young people are much more interested in environmental engineering, you know, an intersection of disciplines that would allow them to... Uh, sort of multi solve instead of this single focus problem solving that sort of leads us to negative unintended consequences that then we have to solve and then we have to solve, et etc. I hear from younger people that there's a real hunger for this, but that in many, many places they're not getting this from their engineering education. And I think maybe part of the reason is it's, it's really thinking outside the box. So unlike these projects, which are kind of the same around the world, you know, slow water solutions are not centralized. They're distributed across the landscape. So if you think of that, you know, 87% of the world's wetlands that have been displaced you begin to understand why you need lots of little projects like all along a water's course to make space and you know within a city if you have this one small space you may think oh it won't do that much but it's all cumulative right um so if you can make space for a marshier and a marshier and marshier all of it is like reducing the the peak flows in the river. Um, So then there becomes like a community facing aspect to this. So in some places, the community is actively managing it together, like the Peruvian Andes, um, or like historically in India, um, I have a chapter that looks at the Eri system in in South India. That was communally managed as well, and, and remnants of it exist today and are being brought back So in places like the U.S. or the U.K., it might be hard to imagine that. And so there might still be experts in charge, but maybe there's a public facing component like education. Um, So if you are restoring a floodplain uh, within a city to a park, maybe there's signage explaining what the landscape is doing and how it's interacting with water and why it floods if necessary and what plants might be there. And I'll just add that these projects are more environmentally just than our current system. So I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea that levees increase the height of the river, right, because you're taking away that floodplain space. And so they can become an environmental justice issue. Like if this community can afford a levy, but this community can't, then you're putting more flooding onto that community that can't afford the levy. But dams are also um, an environmental justice issue. So there was a 40-year survey that found that dams brought water to 20% of the world's people, but decreased water availability to 24% of the world's people. So in so many of these projects, I see that you know, we kind of have this scarcity mindset, particularly when it comes to, oh, we don't have enough water, we have to hold on to our water. But when you care for the water systems, they can actually produce more water. Um, I reported a story after the book in Southern Arizona and Northern Mexico, where they are doing this again, you know, settlers came, they deforested the land, they grazed it really hard. Um, The water now like runs off really fast cuts deep ravines um, and then is only there for you know a very short time sometimes only hours so they've been doing this older practice this older indigenous practice of putting small rocks within the watersheds and um, a scientist uh, from the U.S. Geographical Society measured like she did a paired watershed study with one that had a lot of these treatments and one nearby that had none and the treated stream actually was producing 28% more water. And it's because, um, you know, when the water is just running off of the rock, it's evaporating immediately. Whereas if you're slowing it, if you're creating wetlands where there are drylands and that water infiltrates into the ground and supplies the stream and, and keeps it running much longer and actively provides more water. So I guess the reason I wrote this book, Water Always Wins, is because I felt like there is so much in our dominant culture and the way we think about water that is causing problems for ourselves, and there are people doing incredible work. There's a lot of science, uh, emerging body of science that shows that these things work, but you know, gray infrastructure sort of has a 150 year head start, and you know, water is really important, and you want to be sure that it's going to do what you need it to do. But I think there's also this bias in politicians toward you know the big ribbon cutting and the big concrete infrastructure. But in fact, the damage that we've done to our natural infrastructure is so extreme and it really needs to be counteracted because a significant part of our problem isn't climate change. It is our development choices.
0: One of the things that's really struck me is the idea of almost like community versus individual in how we use water and Perhaps a lot of these traditional practices, particularly in the global South, focus on community rather than individual. And I mean, this this might sound like a silly example, but I think it's really relevant. It's like, how much clean water are we using to flush our toilets in the West every single day in every single household? Should we be kind of, in the West, be looking towards almost older ways of living or different or more communal ways of living to help with this situation? You wonder. do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yes, I think the, the answer to that question is yes, we should. We came up with standardized systems, right? And I think that kind of became very restrictive. You know, we wanted to have that standard system that used, you know, water supply from a 22 mil pipe, you know, that was connected to a tank that sat in our roofs or, you know, we, we came up with these sanitized systems. There's a bit of quality control to it as well. There was a bit of legislation to it as well. <laughs> but then what that did was it really restricted, you know, the sources of water that we could then, use within our homes. And actually what we really need to be doing is going back, just one step back really, to say rainwater, we can use rainwater to flush toilets. We can look at the energy. And I really like to talk about water in energy terms, because I think it's until we start to talk about water and energy terms that we really understand as well the, you know, how much it's
1: costing us as a planet. If I could just insert, like, this is huge. The water energy nexus, California spends 19% of its energy cleaning and moving water. It's the largest use of energy in the state. Wow, 19%. That's huge. And so when we open our taps,
2: you know, and and keep them running as we wash our teeth, it's not just the water we're wasting, we're wasting energy as well. You know, when we start to have that conversation, it then helps us explore other sources of water, less energy intense ways of running our homes and still providing the level of hygiene that we need to provide to to live healthily and again just as Erica said that really connects into our education systems that connects into legislation that connects into you know the ways our our local governance works as well you know councils um, water supply companies um, all all of that I guess, water infrastructure. It's something that that I hope we start to really look at.
0: I actually want to ask you about the sponge city. So tell us all about what you were doing in China. I was designing super high-rise buildings in China. So I'm not sure
2: I was part of the. I was part of the problem. I, I mind we've be, all but...
0: been there, I think. We've sort of all been there. Um, okay, talk but, um, to, okay, more specifically, but, uh, tell me about the sponge city. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. <laughs>
2: I, was, I, was, I was going to get to that, actually. My interest as an engineer, right, really wanting to like push in the boundaries of of what is possible kind of led me to super high-rise buildings. But actually, you know, what I then found was urbanization is a big, massive thing in in China, you know, you think of the, the cities and, and how quickly they're growing and the huge massive aspirations. For a level of comfort right and, and and as such, you know people are commissioning all sorts of infrastructure that yes it is sometimes good for the local economy, and just like in other parts of the world um sometimes is not really necessary for the local economy um but then one thing we you know had to do and work on alongside designing incredible spaces to exist in, was these very intentional interventions, aspects of design that make what you call a sponge city. So permeable pavement in a way that you knew that the water flowing over a paved area was actually going somewhere and going to the right place as against causing flooding you know further down the line ensuring that you know there were you know wetlands in in, in areas that we were taking away a natural course canals where we needed to have canals so alongside um designing super high-rise buildings and these incredible spaces to exist in, what we had to do was design these very, very intentional interventions. China calls them spawn cities and they have estimated that I th- I think about six hundred and twenty-four um cities are prone to flooding. That's huge, right? And so it's essential. You know, there's no way, two ways about it. Every single city has to have a sponge city approach to ensure that we're not putting people's lives at danger.
1: If I could just add one thing about sponge cities, because I do have a chapter on that in my book, there have been some headlines recently about flooding in Chinese cities and, oh, you know, sponge cities isn't working. It's really a question of scale, right? Right the reason China is seeing such a rapid rise in urban flooding is because there's such a rapid rise in cities. These cities have been built over the last couple of decades from nothing, and some of them cover 1,000 square miles. And a lot of the Sponge City original projects cover maybe like five square miles in the city. So they're ambitious, and it's a scale that we've not yet seen really anywhere else in the world in terms of it being national, but it's still not at a scale that um, can make a difference when you have these massive rains. And I'll just add that, like, sometimes you need to think outside the city. So Yu Kong who is a landscape architect uh, who perhaps initiated the sponge cities concept, he talks about managing the landscape. And, you know, that can mean if you have a floodplain just above the city that maybe has marginal agriculture, you know, you could restore that floodplain and then that is going to absorb some of the water that might otherwise flood the city. So it's a question of scale.
0: So, you know, we've got this sponge city thing where, you know, we're building and then we're trying to manage waterways, but there's there's a different approach one that's also being done in the UK, where instead of trying to hold back the sea and prevent flooding and build walls and use that concrete, we're actually just kind of stepping back and moving away. Tell me a little bit about what that entails and why what that works, and if it does work.
1: Yeah, this is sometimes called managed retreat. Um, England is calling it coastal realignment. And I think people are realizing all over the world that people are going to have to move. They're going to have to move back from coastal areas. Uh, and there's a massive increase in inland flooding as well, partly from these development choices that we've been talking about, and partly because with um, higher seas, you have storm surges that push far inland up rivers. You know, this is a really tricky question. Like, how do we get people to move? How do we do this equitably? Um, how do we pay for it? But it is increasingly understood that it will have to happen in some places. So England has taken the perspective with its vast, vast coastline that um, it needs to plan ahead for that. And it's crunched numbers in terms of how many properties are at risk and the cost of infrastructure, et cetera. But basically there are a lot of places along the coast that have been protected by the federal government with things like shingle barriers and and hard infrastructure And they're saying, you know, we're giving notice that we're not going to be able to protect in these areas, these areas, these areas. So I looked at the the manhood peninsula, which is down by Salzi. And you explained that this meant
0: something slightly different than the manhood that we understand (laughs) today.
1: (laughs) Yes, uh, apparently uh, it derives from manwood, uh, which was a wood, a communal forest once upon a time. But there had been Farmland that was increasingly at risk of flooding. the The risk of flood there was something like one in one year, so very high risk. Um, the federal government was spending something like three hundred thousand dollars a year trying to shore up these protections, and it would sometimes still fail. So basically, um, they used money for projects elsewhere that were harming uh, habitat to restore the salt marsh and coastal habitats in this area as protection. So if you can think of the coastal levee, they basically took that away. They built a long U-shaped levee behind it. So the area behind was still protected. But this marginal farmland that they bought out from willing sellers was restored to salt marsh and then um, subsequent habitats. And that's a really important thing. There are a lot of coastal habitats that can protect us. Um, mangroves, salt and tidal marshes, barrier islands, eelgrass beds, um, oyster reefs, but it's a succession of ecosystems. And you really need that connectivity for the freshwater to flow down and supply sediment, um, for the tides to push in, for those things to mix. And if you cut those off with development, you are uh, harming the system's ability to maintain itself. But what's cool about these projects is that they can maintain themselves to a large degree if you give them the ingredients that they need. And so in this particular place, they estimate the risk of flooding is now one in 100 years. Uh, So it's a significant change. That's an incredible change.
0: I'm guessing the insurers are very happy in the local area.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the local people are happy too. And I talked to an ecologist who worked on the project and he said, you know, initially people were really against it because we have in the dominant culture this instinct to think that a hard barrier is what's going to protect us best. And so people felt fear about this change and they worried that they they would be more at risk. But they've come to understand that they are much better protected and there's all kinds of additional benefits. They have um, much more area for recreation. It's boosted their tourism industry. People come to view wildlife. And so, yeah, the community is really for it now.
0: Politics, local community and slowing water down are my takeaways from, from
1: that solution. (laughs) Right. And you know, the UK isn't going to be able to afford to do this everywhere. This is a place where they had money for restoring habitat that they were able to put to this purpose. In some places they are just going to, you know, give notice that they are not going to be protecting it. So, That's a hard uh, transition for people who are invested in these areas, Um, but it's a warning to people who might come that they shouldn't invest in those areas. And if I could just um, tout the work of a scientist at the University of Delaware in the U.S. named A.R. Siders. And she's done a ton of work on managed retreat and how you, you work with the community to do it together to ensure that you're moving towards something better, toward a more just, sustainable uh, community. So it's, it's tricky, but it's increasingly important. And I think it's also a matter of priorities, like um, the Union of Concerned Scientists, which is a nonprofit in the United States. Did a study looking at like how much would it cost to buy out coastal people who are at risk of flooding over the next 50 years. And it was something like, you know, 1.3 trillion, which sounds like a lot of money. But, you know, during the pandemic, the US government came up with some trillions of dollars for things. So, uh, you know, obviously that's not possible in countries that aren't as well off, but it is an example of how we can do big things if we choose to.
0: It is. And I think it ties in a bit with what Yuande was talking earlier about that messaging of engineering and where you know what, what is the right solution for the right place and what's that forward look. And talking about forward look, I would love to hear from both of you. So Yuande, I'll start with you, what your hopes are for the future of the sector. I'm very
2: excited about the role that technology is currently playing in the water sector, as well as the role it would play in helping literally anybody and everybody understand water and their relationship and interaction with water a bit more as well. When I uh, first started to work on, on big projects, I can, rem- I can remember my boss you know, saying, you know what, if you look through the Guidance, the figures that you are being asked to consider in your calculations in terms of consumption of water within your buildings, like they are so much more than you need. The figures are based on appliances that were out there on the market like 15, 20 years ago. And so, what I want you to do is monitor. The water consumption in this commercial building, it was an office, and then use that to inform the water allocation that you design for projects moving forward. And with technology, I could monitor the consumption of water in the building. And <laughs> true to what he kind of alluded to, it was a lot less than what the books and the guidance were saying I should use. And so that informed my designs. It meant that I was not sending volumes of water that I really didn't need to be sending to buildings. And, and I think this approach with technology obviously powering how we collect data, how we communicate with the data that we've collected, it will play a big, massive role in pretty much getting everybody to sing off the same hymn sheet. You know, I'm really, really hopeful and excited about the fact that we are going to start to see, hopefully, more of this efficiency built into our systems because we're using technology in the right way. Businesses as well, businesses are really having to be a lot more efficient because they're losing a lot of money And so I would like to think that the leadership and anybody pretty much associated with these companies are saying, how can we bring our costs down, our energy costs down? How can we bring our maintenance costs down? What materials of the future do we need to be looking at? What systems of the future do we need to be looking at? Where we have old, crumbling infrastructure. How can we come up with the right solutions that then help us future-proof our businesses as well as the impact
0: that we have? (laughs) Same here. Thank you so much. Erica, what are your hopes for the future?
1: So, you know, I hope that people get curious about water. I wrote this book, Water Always Wins, because I'm curious about water and it I just feel like with the kind of professionalization we've really removed people from it which is sort of a continuation of our cultural separation of people from nature you know that might have worked for a while but we're at a point now uh 8 more than 8 billion people on the world uh, where we just don't have space. We don't have that flux in the natural systems. You know, we've altered more than 75% of the land area. And so this is a space where natural systems can no longer function and can no longer support us in the way that we used to. And so I hope that people can understand that and respect it and make space for it and relinquish a little bit of control and trust that there is really an amazing efficiency and uh, complexity in these natural systems. And if we can make space for them to work, uh, you know, we will really be doing ourselves a huge favor. And I think to climate change feels so overwhelming and particularly with that, you know, really rapid and extreme increase in floods and droughts that people are experiencing all around the world every day. It seems like there's another headline, but these slow water projects are really empowering because there's something that people can do in their own community, whether it is like advocating at the city council for, uh, you know, turning a, a floodplain back into a park to make space for it, whether it is actively managing some system, they're a way that communities can buffer themselves against these water extremes. And of course, there's also a really important climate reduction component because, uh, you know, 20% of emissions or more come from land use change and wetlands in particular are kind of superstores of carbon. Um, there's just one other piece that I'm, I'm working on a story now for Nature's new journal Water which is about the role of, of plants in the atmospheric part of the water cycle. And that is something that I think very few people understand and are, are looking at. Um, there's important relationships with heat and wind. And the ways that we have dried out the landscape and deforested and overgrazed are really impacting Floods and droughts that we're seeing in complex ways. And yes, you know, the air is getting warmer, it holds more water that increases drought and flood. But there's another component to it that's not really getting any attention that's very important. So I hope uh, that the science continues to progress, that people are curious about water, that people feel empowered to work together with their neighbors to do something meaningful in their own areas for slow water. And I hope that uh, engineering schools get more seriously behind environmental engineering and looking at these complex systems, uh, because single focus problem solving has a a pretty long track record of of creating additional problems for us.
0: I definitely have my fingers crossed that your hopes um, for the future of water 100% come true. And yes, again, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. What an interesting discussion about the world's most used substance on the earth, that substance without which we just simply can't survive as a species. And the thing that really struck me today is actually, we shouldn't be over-engineering things. And actually, in some cases, maybe moving away removing concrete removing restriction removing almost that friction between natural and human made could be a good thing and perhaps that means taking actually you know a literal and metaphorical step backwards and just assessing how water actually works and then making sure that the solution we put in there is the best for water because ultimately what's best for water will be the best for us.